If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. We'll begin here with chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, 2 Kings 1. And I'll invite you to stand with me as we receive this word together. Hear the word of the Lord. Somebody owes me a gift card, though. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, That's the way it works. (laughs) Beginning here with verse 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and had, leather, had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says. Come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain came, went up, and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? 
Well, an interesting story, to say the least. May God add his blessing to that word. Please be seated. King Ahab and his queen Jezebel obtained a coveted vineyard next to their palace. You'll remember through deception, thievery, and murder. But as we saw last Sunday, Ahab didn't enjoy the fruits of the vineyard for long as he went to battle and a stray arrow pierced his armor, fatally wounded, blood poured out into his chariot, eventually pouring out onto the ground where the dogs came and licked up his blood, just as Elijah the prophet had predicted. It was a tragic and bitter end to one of Israel's most wicked kings. Now, when Ahab dies, the next in line to the throne is his son, Ahaziah. The book of 1 Kings ends with this word concerning Ahaziah. It says, he reigned two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the ways of his father and mother who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. Now what we see clearly is that Ahaziah does not know the God of Israel. He is walking in the path of his parents. And yet we see another clear illustration of a very simple truth that very often our children will walk in the way we point them. Not with our words necessarily, but with our lifestyle. And what I mean by that is this. The word Ahaziah literally means held by Yahweh. Ahaziah was given a name that indicated the strength and the power of and knowledge of God. But let me also say words were never enough. His parents pursued actively other gods and when it was his time to shine, he did not acknowledge God in his life. And so he followed the path set before him. Now, consequently, his introduction to us in 2 Kings is but a picture of a weak, ineffective, and quite frankly, clumsy king. If you notice here, the first thing that we read about Ahaziah is that Moab, the nation, rebelled against Israel. That is a statement about Ahaziah's leadership. Since the time of King David, Moab has been subject to Israel, but King Haziah is such a feeble leader that this nation is not afraid to declare their independence. And apparently he is powerless to do anything about it. Thus, and, and even more unsettling, he is so unstable, so much of a klutz, the Bible portrays him falling from the upper floor of his palace and he severely injures himself. This is not a pretty picture we see here. J. Vernon McGee suggests that he may have been drunk. Now, we don't know that for sure, but what we know is, is that what we see of Ahaziah is not pretty. It is not regal. This is a fledgling leader who stupidly injures himself, and the injury is serious enough, he's afraid he might just not recover. And so he's worried. He's worried about his prognosis. So Ahaziah decides to send messengers to the god of Ekron, Beelzebub, to see if he will improve. Now, that's 70 miles away in the land of the Philistines. He is looking for an answer from Beelzebub. 
Now, you'll remember, if you remember, if you've been with us over these last few weeks, that Baal has been debunked in Israel. That happened when the fire fell at Mount Carmel. So instead of turning to the God of Israel, he turns to yet another foreign God to hear the good news of his condition, hoping to hear at least of good news. Now, interestingly enough, Beelzebub means Lord of the Fly. Now, I don't know what to make of that. I I thought a little bit about it, but, but we won't see this name again until the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12. You'll remember when the Pharisees were not convinced, they refused to believe that the power that Jesus demonstrated was from God. They said, no, it's from Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So what we do know is this, make no mistake about it, what Ahaziah is doing here is seeking answers from a demonic power. He hopes to see into the future. He hopes that things are going to go well and he will rule Israel for decades to come. That's his hope. A frog went to see a fortune teller to learn his future. Gazing into her crystal ball, the fortune teller said to the frog, you're going to meet a beautiful young woman. From the moment she sets her eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know everything about you. She will be compelled to to get close to you. You'll you'll fascinate her. Of course, this excites the frog, and he says, will she kiss me? Will I become a prince? Where will I meet her? No, 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 replied the fortune teller. You'll meet her in biology class. So the messengers are on their way to hear the future. And I'm sure that they had a hefty offering with them. I'm sure they realized that their mission was not to return with bad news. But a funny thing happened to these messengers on the way to Ekron. God sends an angel and tells Elijah to intercept these messengers with a message from the true God of Israel. And the message was to deliver the truth to King Ahaziah. And I want you again to listen to this message. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Let me just stop right there. Is there no God in Israel that you have to search for one so far away who in fact is no God at all? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to to see here. I want you to first see how sad and desperate it becomes when there is no God in Israel. We see death and confusion, chaos, Rebellion becomes a part of the landscape. Moab is rebelling. Leadership is unstable. People are searching for assurances, false assurances, instead of searching for God. I want to tell you, when a nation forgets God, the society itself begins to crumble from the top down. You may be aware that recently the Pew Research Center came out with a rather sobering report. The headline read, in U.S., the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. 
Now, that's a headline that I don't think previous generations in our nation would have conceived of. Even at the midpoint of the 20th century, evangelical Christians believed that Christianity was on the ascent, not the descent. But this report from Pew tells us, and I quote, The religious landscape of the United States continues to change at a rapid clip. In telephone surveys conducted in 2018 and 2019, 65% of American adults described themselves as Christians when asked about their religion, down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the religiously unaffiliated share of the population consisting of people who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26%, up from 17% in 2009. This is a, a remarkable and rapid change going on that we're witnessing in our country. And, and most of us sense this. We see this and sense this shift. Is there no God in Israel? What happens when a nation forgets God? An atheist complained to his Christian friend, You Christians have your holidays like Christmas and Easter. The Jews celebrate Passover and Yom Kippur. But but we atheists, we don't have any holidays. It's not really fair. His friend replied, What do you mean? You have April Fool's Day. I was fascinated uh, to read a speech by William Barr, our attorney general. He recently made at Notre Dame University. He knew his speech would receive scrutiny and criticism as he talked about the dangers of our ever-increasing secular society. And in that, he argued that in our increasingly secular age, our human liberties themselves are very much threatened. You see, he forcefully argued that the founding generation of Americans were largely Christians and operated out of a distinctively Christian worldview. And out of that worldview came an understanding that our rights and liberties came from God and his laws provided a moral order and stabilization of society. Without that worldview underpinning our nation, He says it's in peril. He quoted John Adams, our second president, who said, We have no government armed with the power which is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He said our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other In other words, what John Adams was saying is, is if we lose the sense of God in our society, our system of rights and liberties and laws will not work. But then William Barr said this, and on the one hand, we have seen the steady erosion of our traditional Judeo-Christian moral system and a comprehensive effort to drive it from the public square. On the other hand, we see the growing ascendancy of secularism and the doctrine of moral relativism. By any honest assessment, said the Attorney General, the consequences of this moral upheaval have been grim. Now, William Barr 
served as the, uh, serves as the 85th Attorney General of the United States. But some of you know he also served as the 77th Attorney General under President George H.W. Bush. So he spoke of the time when he was Attorney General then. America, back in 1992, not that long ago, he said this. He said, the illegitimacy rate, that is the percentage of babies born outside of wedlock, was 25%. Today, he said, it is over 40%. In many of our largest urban areas, it is over 70%. He then said those secularists who claim to be moral progressives as they push aside Christian morality and understanding of sexuality and marriage, he then asked a great question. He said, but where is the progress? But here's the thing. Once you have eradicated the influence of the Christian worldview in society, In other words, you take God out of the nation, something else will fill the void. If our laws do not come from God, if our liberties and rights do not come from him, where will it come from? Then it will come from those who are in power. And those can be taken away at the whims of those who are in power. And he says that it will come from the government. The government, he points out, will rush in with its own moral coercion. And so the government will tell you what is right, how to believe, how to behave, and what liberties you can enjoy. The government will dictate to you what is moral and immoral based on any number of social ideals and systems. I see evidence of this right now with, with especially when I look at young people who are enamored with the idea of socialism. Our bent towards socialism this day is an example. It, it decapitates the right to, to private property. It negates the incentive for hard work and falsely assumes that in its effort that, that everybody share everything equally is somehow compassionate. William Barr said, Christianity teaches a micro-morality. We transform the world by focusing on our own personal morality and transformation, and that makes for a better world. But in in contrast, the new secularism teaches a macro-morality. Interestingly, one's morality is not gauged by private conduct, but rather a commitment to political causes and collective action to address social problems. Now, there's some deep stuff there, and I realize I'm getting a little heady, but I want you to see what he's saying. Because here is the problem. If you don't deal with the heart, those social problems, and they are many and legion, will never be adequately addressed. I go back to the brilliant observation made by Alexis de Tocqueville, the French philosopher who came to America in the early 1800s to try and determine the source of our nation's greatness. He later wrote in the book, Democracy in America, he said, America's greatness does not lie in her rivers or her harbors. 
It does not lie in her fertile fields or vast resources or in her factories or her politics. But when I went to the churches of America and I heard the pulpits aflame with righteousness, then I understood why America is great. America is great because America is good. And when America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Social righteousness can only come from a personal righteousness because government can never deal with the heart. Secularism can never transform the person. Are you with me? So Elijah has this message. Is there no God in Israel that you search for Beelzebub? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. Now, this is the second thing that I want you to see. God loves us enough to tell us the truth. Truth here is not so much God's judgment on Ahaziah. The king is seriously injured and he is going to naturally die in the course of time. And so the Lord comes and interrupts his false and silly excursion to Ekron and warns him, listen, if you, if, if truth is what you really are looking for, then let me tell you the truth. God did not step in to take his life. He steps in here to reveal the truth. The truth is this, Ahaziah. There is a God in Israel. You don't know me, but you can. The truth is, Ahaziah, you weren't expecting to hear from me, but this is what is going to happen to you. You are going to die. That's the truth. What I begin to see here as I read this passage is this is not so much a moment of judgment as a moment of grace. Ahaziah, there is a God. You can know me. Ahaziah, you are going to die. This morning, this is a truth that we all need to come to grips with. God loves you enough to tell you the truth. There is one true God. He has revealed himself perfectly through the person of Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. But you also need to know this, my friend. One day, you are going to die. Elijah's message was an opportunity for Ahaziah then to repent of his sin and get right with God. Because Ahaziah, you are going to die. Ahaziah, you are a sinner. You have transgressed the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But if you can recognize me now, if you can confess your sins, take heed of this warning and seek me, you may die, but you will really begin to live. Now, Ahaziah is surprised to see these messengers. They've come back so soon. They tell him, well, you see, we got interrupted by this guy with this message. And Ahaziah says, well, what did he look like? Oh, I know who that is. It's Elijah. Now, Ahaziah does not want to hear from God. He reveals a hard heart. 
And this is so very sad, but it's true not only of Ahaziah, but for so many people today, not everyone wants to hear a word from the Lord. So Ahaziah sends a captain and a company of 50 soldiers to invite Elijah for some tea at the palace. Now that's not true. He actually is sending those soldiers, of course, because he wants to get rid of Elijah. He wants Elijah out of the way. And when we see Elijah, he is on a top of a hill. He is communing with God. And we see the captain of the a captain come to Elijah and say, Man of God, and I can almost hear the, the sarcasm in his words as he says, The king says, Come down. Now, we're rather fascinated by the fact that Elijah answers, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And wouldn't you know it, just like at Mount Carmel, fire falls and then these men become crispy critters, just like that. (laughs) When they don't return, maybe they see the smoke rising in Samaria. Ahaziah sends another 50 men and a captain. We see the same thing happen. Man of God, this is what the king says. Come down. Same thing. Whoosh. Fire crispy critters. But what I want to do is stop right there and make this observation. It seems to me, as a matter of course, as Christians, we should always respect the king. The Bible is clear that those who are in authority are there because God has allowed it to be so. But I also want you to see this. We also see occasions when the king tells us to do something and we should not do it. The captain says, this is what the king says. And Elijah would not come down. As a matter of course, We should always respect political authority. But I'm going to say to you, church, there are going to be times when we will have to say, no, I will not come down. Now, listen, in our society today, there are those issues where the government is going to say to the church, come down because we say so. And we must be in good conscience, be able to say, no, no. We will not come down. When the government tells us that uninhibited access to abortion is a moral right and imperative, we in the church cannot come down from our position that life begins in the womb. When the government redefines marriage as something other than between a man and a woman, listen, that pressure is just beginning. But we cannot come down from those positions that God has made so very clear in his word. When the government will tell us that we must come down from our lofty position of regarding gender as male and female. That there are multitudes of genders and experience that defy category. Listen, church. For the sake of those we love and are trying to reach, we must not come down. In the future, Bible-believing Christians need to face the reality that we may be, in fact, vastly outnumbered. Ours, indeed, is a post-Christian era. Our experience is becoming increasingly like that of the early church. 
when followers of Christ were considered such a threat to the cultural norms that they were arrested and even sometimes executed for their faith. Jesus was the epitome of compassion, yet he was crucified by the majority. And he said these words, he said, a servant is not above his master. If the world hated me, it will hate you. My friends, I have a sobering word for you. Our road as Christians in the future may be a difficult one. The world already is trying to label us as haters and bigots. No matter how tender or how compassionate and courteous we try to be, we must remember the world is in rebellion against the truth of God's word. And so, yes, they may take our tax exemptions, They may jail your preacher. They may declare us to be an illegal assembly. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we are going to stand for truth. We will continue to seek Christ. We We will stand on this high, very narrow ridge of loving others with passion and compassion and grace, but also calling others to a radical obedience in Jesus Christ. We will not come down because the government says so. The prophet Hosea predicted our day when I think he said, the days of punishment are coming, the days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility so great. The prophet is considered a fool the inspired person, a maniac. We have a higher authority. Now, you would think that after 102 men have been lost, Ahaziah might get the message. Surely he knew how things were going, and yet he sends a third company to retrieve Elijah. Ahaziah sends the prophet and Uh, or, or wants to silence the prophet and continue in his rejection of God. But notice something changes here this third time. Ahaziah has a hard heart. There's no doubt about that. But did you notice this third captain? And I think we can all understand why he's getting the message. Instead of coming in arrogance and sarcasm, he's kneeling and pleading for mercy. And he prays not just for himself, but for his men. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's this healthy fear which keeps him and his men alive. Now, notice Elijah does not go down because the king said so. I found this fascinating. He goes down at the direction of the angel of the Lord. Elijah answers to the higher authority. And then I noticed this. He's escorted into the palace, and this is what struck me as I read this. Elijah is in the palace. He's surrounded by all the the, the trappings of royalty, the pomp and the circumstance, the swords and the spears and the guards, and the king himself. And this is his message. Did you notice that message did not change one bit. 
Not one word changes. He is not intimidated. Elijah simply repeats what he said at the beginning of the story. Because what God says is a certainty. God's word does not change. And so the story of Ahaziah ends. And I notice in this story, this is not a story about how he lived, but really about how he died. Ahaziah dies in his unbelief. He refuses to acknowledge God. Now we see the contrast. A captain lives because he fears God, but not Ahaziah. So this is what we see. God cared enough to send his prophet. He cared enough to step in and show himself to be real and powerful. He cared enough to tell him the truth. Even in God's wrath and judgment, we see God's concern and grace and love. And of course, then I think about it, I'm reminded that God stepped into our world through Jesus Christ. He demonstrated his power with many miraculous signs. He healed the lame and the blind and raised the dead. He interrupted history so that we would know God's heart and we would know that, yes, we are going to die. But God says, if you trust me, that does not have to be the end of this story. You can follow me. Even in God's wrath and judgment, which was poured out on the cross due to our sin, Christ died for you. He took your place on that hill. And he rose again. And Jesus says, follow me. Repent of your sin and believe. God added his blessing to that word. Father, I just pray.